It's Monday, December 13th. This is LA Podcast. I'm Matt Tinoco. I'm Rachel Reyes. And I'm Scott Frazier. You are listening to the 204th episode of LA Podcast. Alyssa Walker is off today, taking a much-needed vacation. She's on the Amtrak, and I'm sure that you'll get to hear a little bit about her trip next week. In the meantime, we've got a great episode for you today. We're talking about what it's like to work retail these days and how that relates to talk of a new crime wave. Plus, Metro fares are coming back shortly after the new year starts. And Eric Garcetti, currently the mayor, may actually be on the way out. If you want to support us, please join our Sepulveda Pass program Uh, We talk about it every week. This is what keeps our show going and allows us to do the reporting that we do and more things on the way. You can join the Sepulveda Pass by going to thelapod.com and clicking the support us link or by going to patreon.com slash lapodcast. Besides LA Podcast, it's always my part to tell you about LA Newsletter, which is kind of like LA Podcast in your podcast feeds on Monday morning but it's actually a written email that shows up in your inbox every early every Saturday morning. Uh, And the way that you can subscribe to that is go to thelapod.com slash newsletter. There's a link right at the very top of the show notes. Very easy for you. And we also have fanny packs available. I'm in my house looking at the one that I ordered about a week ago for myself. It arrived relatively quickly, much faster than it said it was going to. And if you're a member of the Sepulveda Pass, the Sepulveda Pass holder, you will get to have a a healthy discount to the the price that is listed on the um, on the on the sale website if you are not a Sepulveda Pass holder. So you know, there's a coupon code that's available in Patreon for people who are Sepulveda Pass holders. You enter that in at checkout, and it knocks a nine dollars off of the nine dollars off the cost of uh, the fanny pack. Um, yeah, and I think that's about. It on the announcement ends. I was wondering if we could go, Rachel, to an LA story. Do you have one for us? I do. I do. So I do a 7.15 a.m. workout class Monday to Friday. Oof. And yeah, but <laughs> it's the best way to start your day. So I encourage it. I would say that every class has about 7 to 12 people. So it's pretty sparse, Mm -hmm. which I love. There's always parking. There's room to stretch. However, this week for the first time in probably the entire pandemic, my class had a wait list and there were like 30 people in this class. It was very crowded and it it was weird to see because I haven't seen a studio class that full since pre-pandemic. And... I was really surprised because it was raining that morning. We have this new, you know, COVID variant. But here we are, a full class with a wait list in the middle of Brentwood at 7.15. So I was shocked. Mm -hmm. Are we back? Do people just not care? I mean, get ready for after New Year's, right? Like that's the time. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I think I actually just might not go to class for all of January just to let everyone have their time. And then go back in February. But if that's what it's like now, yeah, I would imagine it's going to be. It was a sight to see. It was a sight to see. I was getting kicked. Like there was no room in the class. (laughs) It was very, it was very strange. It was slightly welcome, although I was a little bit like, oh no, Mm -hmm. I hope everyone in here is vaccinated and boosted. A great reminder to get your booster. 
everyone if you have not received your booster shot yet. I honestly, like, I do think back to, like, you know, like pre-pandemic yoga classes that I would take yeah. in downtown when when Sarah and I lived in downtown and it was like tiny studio space full. They would just be like, fill it up. Matt to Matt. <laughs> Matt to Matt, yeah. overlapping. And I sort of like think back to that and I'm like, it's kind of nice when you think about it. Like it wasn't nice at the time. I was real, I was annoyed. Right, right. <laughs> but, and you're tall, so I'm sure the people behind you were annoyed. Everyone I, was annoyed. And I, I sweat a lot more than the average <laughs> uh, petite white lady yoga. There's, there's more square footage so to sweat. People did not like being next to me. Uh, but yeah, like I think in pandemic time, I kind of look back on that and I'm like, it would be kind of nice to just be like in a communal space like that. Right. But I don't know how I would feel about it if it were to actually happen, I guess. It was a little freaky, but you're right. I mean, it did feel, oh, right. Like I do live in a neighborhood yeah. with more than a dozen people existing in one space at a time. You so just, that way it was lovely. You just kind of suspend uh, just this, it's like I have everything I know about this virus. I'm like, I see that there's no windows or anything in here. Right. I'm just gonna not think about <laughs> it now. <laughs> well, you know, to their credit, they did have the back door fully open. Sure. And the air is blasting. They're trying to circulate the mm-hmm. air. But of course, we'll, you know, we'll see in two weeks how I feel. Matt, do you have an LA story? Just that it kind of clicked into my head that now that the LA City Council redistricting maps are in fact final, like it's happened at this point, more or less. I don't know if the mayor has signed it at this exact moment, um, but I guess you'll have to do something. Uh, the The area that I'm, I live in is being moved from CD13, Mitch O'Farrell, into CD4, uh, Nithya Raman's district. But that means that the particular area where I live, it means we're not going to, we're going to go seven years without voting on a council member because <laughs> Mitch O'Farrell was, he was reelected in March of 2017. Uh, he had that special five and a half year term, yep. which means that he's still in office until the end of 2022. Um, but I'm moving to a district where that council member is not up for reelection until 2024. So that's a seven year period where everybody in my particular neighborhood just doesn't vote on a council member. And I don't have a like a long list of like where else this is happening, where else this has happened around the city of LA, but I'm sure I'm not the only place where this has happened, where the lines have changed in a particular way um, to just mean that there's a couple of census blocks that just, you know, it'll be fine. Just like, and it, like, it's just like in all the discussion of um, uh, just this redistricting process, it's like there's so much hemming and hawing about like, ooh, who is going to be representative and yeah. like all this stuff. Meanwhile, practically like here's a census track. It's like a dense neighborhood in like, yep. like the Los Feliz East Hollywood, Hollywood borderlands. Like it's the Hollywood Western Station area, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is a dense apartment neighborhood of like, it's like a vaguely gentrifying neighborhood. It's also a lot of like older Armenian and Latino immigrants who are like still here. And it's like, that's seven years, no vote on a city council member. And that's not a factor. It's just like not something that it doesn't. So, I mean, like, I guess we did have um, a like small amount of discussion in, in city council about like, oh, some of these people won't be voting for a long time, but it was clearly not like the determining factor. No, no, not at all. Uh, much more so, it was like city council members saying, we need an asset, or uh, other city council members saying, uh, for example, Nithya Raman saying, I'm losing a substantial part of my constituents. It was very much not like, this is the on the ground, the, like maintaining the ability of people to actually vote and participate in elections didn't come up that much um, at all, as far as I remember. And the way the line in particular was drawn right here is that the 
I, I, not to go specific on my location, but the main commercial strip where I am is Hollywood Boulevard's Thai town. Mm-hmm. The buildings on Hollywood well, that Boulevard- really narrows it down. You yeah. only have like half a million people who could say that. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but, the, but the, the way it's drawn is that the commercial properties on Hollywood remain in CD13. But the first parcel just to the north, which is, it's like that goes to CD4. So the residential, and I assume this is like so- CD, so, so like Thai Town's commercial strip isn't split among two council districts, but then the result is you're splitting it on the residential parcel 25 feet north of Hollywood Boulevard. It's just, it's, I don't know. I mean, this is just how it goes, but. I'm I, sure there was a science to it that we're not privy to. I know. It's like, who, who, who decided that? It is, it is truly a, a dark art, um, not a science. I, I, um, the, the only thing that I can think of that just really occurred to me recently in relation to to this question of of the redistricting and voting, is we had one of these uh, every so often. Um, somebody posts something on social media where they're like, "Look at how few representatives, elected representatives, there are in LA compared to other cities, world cities, and those in the United States as well, uh, compared to the population here." And my thing is always. Municipal governments are structured very differently from place to place, so it's not always like a clean-cut comparison. That said, I mean, I've, I've talked about on the show before that we should have more city council members, but that's not the point I want to make here. The thing that I'm really interested in is um, if you look at a place like Paris, where they actually have a huge number of city councilors, 163, <laughs> they all are elected and serve the, the same term. It's a six-year term yeah. from 2014 to 2020, and then the most recent one from 2020 to 2026. And I was just like, wait, I was thinking about it, and I was like, why do we have these staggered terms on LA City Council? For 15 people, like you're going to say like the administrative burden of, of having these elections, 15 people elected at once would be too great. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, but I had never really thought about it before. It seems like they should all just be lined up with the presidential election and just do four-year terms. But that was that was my thing. It only just, like I said, only just occurred to me. And then you wouldn't have to worry about people getting cut out of, of the voting process. We'll add it to the list of the Charter Amendment. <laughs> Scott, L.A. story. Uh, my L.A. story, I am, as, as I'm doing, uh, <laughs> updating, updating you all on uh, my daughter's milestones, her achievements that she's unlocking, so to speak. Uh, I we, we are doing her first Hanukkah and her first Christmas this year. Um, RIP to the, the Fox News Christmas tree that really ruined <laughs> our Hanukkah celebrations. I, I hate to say it, but um, it's hard it's hard to be Jewish in this country anymore when people are burning down Christmas trees. Um, we went to Home Depot to get our our Christmas tree. It was great. What I did the same thing. Oh, you did? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm yeah. About this. I I mean, it was. We actually had been planning on going to first the the there was like the the intersection of Death at Vermont Sunset Virgil etc. Uh, they used to have a, a Christmas tree lot right there. It's not there anymore. Um, and then we were thinking about going to Larchmont, but instead our neighbor was like, just go to Home Depot. It's, and I was like, oh, third it's of the so price. easy. The mm-hmm. third place. Yeah, the third place. Um, but yeah, shout out to the the workers that they have out there who are exceptionally just 
nice and do everything that you need for you. It it, it was nice. It, I mean, it was like for us, it was a return to a sort of um, ability to have some basic ass tradition in in uh, in our home in our living room, and to do that for uh, Ida, which was you know it it's a thrill sort of to be able to do these norm core things at this point like it is Hell sort yeah. of it is sort of like um i don't know not like reclaiming but it is sort of just like fun to just revel in a little holiday festivity so I think it is reclaiming. It's reclaiming your joy. Yeah. And it's reclaiming the family unit in the times of COVID. Yeah. I think that's awesome. And then we're going to take it outside and light it on fire. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's the Fox News way. We're here for it. It's a war on Christmas and somebody has to light the first match, I suppose. (laughs) Okay, that's it for LA Stories. Let's get into the news of the week. First, we want to follow up on a story that we talked about actually just last week regarding current mayor Eric Garcetti, who is now scheduled to appear before the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee on December 14th, which is tomorrow. Tomorrow, as you're listening to this. It's the committee hearing that will determine whether or not Garcetti is fit to represent the U.S. to India, the world's largest democracy. Garcetti is poised to sit in front of several senators, including Marco Rubio, Mitt Romney, Rand Paul, and Ted Cruz. Uh, all, all of the senators on this committee, um, by the way, this, this nomination and confirmation process has been uh, incredibly fraught as uh, among them, Ted Cruz has indicated that he wants to slow walk the nominations processes overall. Uh, but nonetheless, they are moving forward. So 10 a.m. To, at Washington time tomorrow, 7 a.m. for us, that is when the hearing on Garcetti's nomination uh, is set to begin. He is the second person up that day. We'll have a link for you in the show notes if you want to follow along. The committee hearing is also not the final step for the confirmation because a full Senate vote is required for these diplomatic confirmations. That might take some time still. We don't know what the schedule is looking like for this. Rahm Emanuel, for uh, context, had this hearing before the Foreign Relations Committee on November 3rd, and all that we currently know is he could be confirmed by the end of this year. Nothing for certain. For Eric, it's been five months since he was nominated. Rumors were swirling before that. Uh, and he's still mayor. It's been a long time where he's been sort of in limbo, but he's here. Rachel, if he does get the nom, if he does get the nod, what is his title going to be? Okay, let me clear my throat a little bit and get this out so you all understand it. In the Senate docs, he's called the Honorable Eric Garcetti of California, to be ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary of the United States of America to the Republic of India. Put that on a shirt. Put Put that that on a shirt. You know, I mean, uh, it kind of just reminds you of how (laughs) these diplomatic posts are like... Meaningless? They're like derived (laughs) from this ancient uh, imperial European It sounds like he manages the observatory. Like, Um, that's what it sounds like to me. Mr. Mr. Megorium. (laughs) I've pulled up the Wikipedia page for plenipotentiary just because what does the word actually mean? 
uh, a lead thing, a plenipotentiary is a diplomat who has full powers, authorization to sign a treaty or convention on behalf of his or her sovereign. I guess this means that he can sign a treaty with India, which yeah. is, I mean, mayor of LA to signing a treaty with the world's largest democracy. You know, I guess he's the guy for the job. These are, I mean, these, wow. these titles really are like drawn straight from Imperial Britain and Napoleonic France. And it's, it's very strange <laughs> to see them still have this kind of currency. So should our favorite mayor, Eric Garcetti, go to India we would then have Mayor Nuri Martinez. And as we all know, Nuri Martinez is current president of city council. She announced back in September, I believe, that she is sitting out the next election cycle and allowing, you know, half of the other council members to run for mayor instead (laughs) in Eric Garcetti's absence. And I just want to give a little, a a slight background on Nuri Martinez for those uh, that might not know her. She's from the Valley, as am I. She went to San Fernando High School, as did both of my parents, and she went to CSUN. And I do want to give credit where credit is due. I think that Nuri Martinez did a lot of really important work early on in her career um, that you can all read about on Google, and I don't (laughs) need to go over here. And it would be historic for her, should Eric Garcetti leave and should she become... Uh, the mayor in the meantime, she would be the first woman mayor. She would be the first Latinx mayor for sure. And the first combination of both of those things. So I do think it's important to point that out. <laughs> My personal opinion that. More- Absolutely though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it is a, it is a milestone of, of a kind for a city that has never had a woman of any description in, yeah. as, as mayor. Nuri's been doing this acting mayor job. Because, right. Does she because- get sworn in or is it just like acting She's acting. Yeah. I mean, she's acting until they determine what it is that they want to do long term. And everybody right. is saying that they're going to, in all likelihood, pick. I mean, city council could either do a special election; they're not going to do that, or <laughs> uh, or they can pick somebody that, themselves. So that's been sort of the the scuttlebutt over the course Joe. of most. They should pick Joe. Obviously, he <laughs> wants it the most. Uh, well, and so here's the thing: is that. As we get closer to this mayoral election, and because, as you said, we have so many uh, council members who are eyeing eyeing the mayoral seat in the election, uh, or if not directly running, then sort of lining up behind their favorites, a lot of people have (laughs) fallen out with with, (laughs) uh, council member Buscaino, even people who I think were relatively well aligned on, on policy with him before. It seems like his only real ally in city council these days is John Lee, Mr. Lee, yeah, uh, of the of the twelfth district, the the lone independent on city council, formerly a Republican, and uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like Joe Buscaino has many <laughs> friends these days. We've talked about uh, Paul Krikorian, who is termed out in the second district as um, as somebody that the rumors have been that the the city council would look to put him in the mayoral seat full time. Got to have a man, apparently. So yeah, so uh, Nuri Martinez, we see her slotting back into this acting mayor role until uh, the the council actually makes a determination about what they're going to do. Again, there's just, I mean, even though we have this process moving forward, um, there's no guarantees at this point. And you have to think that Mayor Garcetti would have preferred for a uh, a slightly more clear-cut exit, especially with, as we talked about last week, 
uh, news still coming out in a uh, in an unfolding scandal in his city hall during the course of his administration. Yeah, and just to do a little bit of update, Alyssa and Scott talked a lot about that last week. And if you haven't listened to that episode, it's more or less like the first, like the the first thirty minutes of news in in last week's Ellie podcast episode is specifically talking about Alyssa's really really stupendous piece of reporting for New York Magazine that. Um, says what so many other things have not with regards to the culture of sexual harassment in in the Garcetti office and the extent to which the mayor um, knew about it and didn't do anything. Um, but relevant to that, last week you would have, we would have said that the trial, um, the Garza v. L.A. trial, um, that is everything is spilling out in was set for the end of January. That might be changing. It's it's like that's still where the, as we're recording this right now, the, the court hasn't ruled on it. But the attorneys for Matthew Garza have basically asked the court to, to delay it uh, because the city of Los Angeles has asked to do a full psych evaluation on on Matthew Garza, the the former LAPD security detail um, officer who was who alleges that he was um, serially harassed by Rick Jacobs, Eric Garcetti's one of his closest advisors. And so all Ooh, it means, we're in the mud now. Super in the mud. But like, so, so it means it might also not start at the end of January. Um, that's the court. There is an ask of the court to do that. The court hasn't done it, which would, which just kind of gets me to this spot where it's like, so say like just we're heading to one of two things with Eric Garcetti. Either he gets confirmed by the U.S. Senate and disappears, like he's gone, or he doesn't get confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And I guess that's just humiliating. And I guess he'll just stay here as mayor. Like, and also I guess have to deal with an ongoing trial. So I like those are the two things for 2022. I guess I don't. Is there anything else like either of you for, for Garcetti World specifically? I mean, the the thing is like I, I have to. I would bet against the trial happening in in January. Um, that these dates get pushed all the time. Mm-hmm. The California court system is notorious for it. Um, and and things are just very very slow on that front. I d- I doubt we will see this trial happen in the next month or so, especially as you said, if the plaintiffs' lawyers are asking for a delay. Um, the thing about Garcetti's involvement in the case we've talked about before, and I'll restate here that I think one of the reasons why, if I were Eric Garcetti, I would have been asking for a relatively plum overseas assignment. Uh, in India is because theoretically you can wait out whatever comes up during a trial. You can spend the remainder of uh, Biden's term and hopefully a subsequent Democratic term uh, <laughs> in in a uh, in a, at a location where people are just not going to be that interested in. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say that with uh, a, a categorical emphasis. Who knows what will come out at trial? It could end up being something enormous that is globally relevant, but um, but I would say that that is a, a slim likelihood uh, when you're talking about the affairs of an ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary. Uh, so I would say it's it's just a place for him to wait and then come back. Hopefully, once people have forgotten, and then run for a subsequent office, not in LA. He's clearly over LA. Um, that is that is my expectation. If he's unable to do that, if he doesn't get confirmed, um, then he has to be stateside and deal with the fallout of this, which means he either has to hide from the public eye, which doesn't look good. Well, he's very good at it. So. 
Yeah, it's easy. It's better though when you're in office and you're like <laughs> paradoxically, it's better to be in office and hiding from the public eye than out of office and afraid to run for something. Take that again. If you have high ambitions like our mayor does. Uh, anyway, I, I don't think that 2022 will be something, will be a year where we are looking for huge LA centric uh, updates coming out of Garcetti's immediate orbit. We're going to talk now about that thing in the headlines uh, a lot lately, uh, retail theft. And so this morning when I went to search, quote, retail theft online, just to double check that it is still in the headlines. Uh, The top news that I was presented with by the news algorithm was a headline saying, quote, leading retail CEOs appeal to Congress for help amid rising U.S. retail theft. So we've got congressional hearings on the approach. Uh, We've got local news boosting some pretty shocking videos of smash and grab robberies. Uh, I guess this is how it gets presented. And then we're heading, and there's a lot of them. Uh, and then there's also just a, we, like we're hearing about every single sort of smash and grab robbery that there may, that may be happening in a store in Southern California, um, which is, we don't usually hear about every single one. And Los Angeles is huge. So there are just by nature a lot. Um, but also like we kind of noted a second ago above, for Nuri Martinez isn't running for mayor, we are heading into what's going to be a really, really, I'll call it vibrant election season, um, which in my view, and I think maybe both of your views, has something to do with this sort of news blast about retail theft and crime and everything, which we'll also be talking a little bit more about here in this episode. But Rachel Reyes is a an expert in this. I was, I, I, I can I, is it appropriate to call you the, the LA podcast retail correspondent? Sure, yes. And I'll just ask, like, what, you see all the news about retail theft and everything, and, and this is your profession, and I'm curious what you think of it, and is, is now really any different than it has ever been before? Yeah, for context, and you both know this, I have now liberated myself from the nonprofit world, so I am back in the real world, and I decided to just go back to my former career in retail. I did it for years and years in my 20s. I loved it. Then the pandemic happened, of course. Everyone got fired if they worked in a store. And now we're back. So I was curious to see what it would be like during the pandemic. I hadn't worked during the pandemic before. And, you know, it was the same as shopping, right? Got to wear a mask, got to wash your hands, use hand sanitizer. So in that way, it's different. This crime wave, smash and grab, organized retail crime situation is a little newer to me, mm-hmm. but there have been thefts at stores before. So in that way, it's not new. Like people steal all the time. It's not like that. This isn't new. So I guess in that way, it's not new. But what is new is the the sensationalization of it. Like the fact that so many customers come in to ask us about it. Mm. Oh, has anyone stolen from here? Why is your door closed? Is it locked because of the crime? And in reality, it's locked because it was getting dark at like four during the year. And, you know, my company finally decided it's a little bit safer when we are understaffed and only have one person working to just have a lock on the door, buzz people in. But of course, yeah, there is now an added level of security. Should we be met with 25 people trying to come in and take our products? So like if 25 people were to come in and try to, I mean, in like how, 
just generally, is there like a best practices sort of thing for for dealing with? I mean, I assume it varies wildly, widely between each individual sort of storefront. But like in terms of your experience of like how our retail workers say, so like, as you just said, shoplifting happens. Mm-hmm. You, we see it, it happens. It's a, as long as there have been stores, there have probably been shoplifters. Right. But like, what do you, what's the prevailing wisdom on like what to do? Like as, as for, for the people who are working in the store, like. Mm-hmm. Honestly, everywhere I've worked, whether it was inside of a department store or not, you are not supposed to confront anyone. Um, I have always been told people want to take the cash from the register. People want to take the product, like let them take the product because your life matters more than whatever you're selling. So that's always been my direction. I know that places like Urban Outfitters are allowed to ask you if they can see what's inside your bag, if you are doing a more covert shoplifting, Uh Um, but they can't follow you out of the store, for instance. But there are department stores like Macy's, Bloomingdale's, et cetera. They have loss prevention. They have security guards. So the employees of the store don't necessarily ever have to confront anyone that they think is stealing. That's really up to the security guards. But even with that level of security and those those employees, they they aren't necessarily told either to follow someone out of the store. I mean, we've had a ton of press coverage like we're talking about, you you mentioned the the sort of sensationalism uh, that is growing around these robberies, mm-hmm. and actually we have had at least one, I think multiple at this point. LAPD uh, recently held a press conference just talking about these eleven different robberies in which they have arrested fourteen suspects surround in the days surrounding the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, LAPD said there were $338,000 in stolen goods, more than $40,000 in property damage. Um, I'm wondering if you can help us and our listeners put those numbers into context somewhat. Totally. So across all of the 11 different smash and grabs that happened in November, those are the numbers, as you said. I would also like to throw out some other numbers in the way that local police departments are responding to these rash of robberies. So Santa Monica is reallocating $1 million worth of COVID recovery funds to Santa Monica Police Department to do additional patrolling um, up and down shopping districts in general. So we're talking the Promenade, Montana, those places. $1 million for extra patrolling hours. And Walnut Creek, approved $2 million for additional policing. And I just would like folks to sit with that because <laughs> that's so much money and so much and of that. COVID recovery it's, money. COVID recovery yeah, money. Exactly. Like, <laughs> right? it, it was not ever intended to go to police departments. And that's what's burning me up about the discussion on the news that we're seeing because it's, you know, these robberies are being blamed on a lot of things, but what I keep seeing it blamed on is, well, we defunded the police and that's what happens. People start to rob. And like, clearly that's not true because now they're getting even more money into their already bloated budgets to not stop things that are going to continue happening. Like police are not prevent, like we have enough police. We have- I, I, I just want to say, I hear 
defund. I hear defund the police more from the police totally. than from anywhere else <laughs> anywhere in twenty twenty in twenty twenty one. Uh, I actually I don't I don't I haven't talked about this on the show before, but for the recent article which we put up online about the the sheriff's department uh, and two deputies there who had been involved in a DUI arrest. I called their uh, public information officer and I was just trying to get a comment from them. Uh, and they, I had sent them an email previously. They were very mad that I wasn't giving them more time. I was like, hey, look, I sent you this, this email a while back. And so the person I spoke with on the phone, the deputy I spoke with on the phone comes back and she's like, Oh, I apologize. Things fall through the cracks. You know, we're we're under we were understaffed before we defunded the police, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, and mm-hmm. now that we're defunded, we're even more understaffed. Mm-mm. And I didn't say anything back to her, but I was just kind of like, "Wow, this is what you're just saying. Like, you don't yeah. know me at all. Like, you're just saying this to yeah. anybody who calls in. Apparently, they say it with such regularity, um, and it becomes." Uh, it does become this talking point, even as they're shifting money from COVID recovery into uh, their personal accounts. That's the LA Sheriff's Department, not the poli- not the Santa Monica Police Department. But I think the point stands. I, and on those the numbers, the the three hundred thirty eight thousand dollars in stolen goods, like in this in this entire sort of media frenzy that we're going through right now, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a few minutes too, more more directly. But you get the the like it's Prop forty seven's fault. Um, Prop 47 being the ballot, the the statewide voter, uh, the ballot proposition that California voters approved in 2014, I think it was, um, changing changing certain crimes in the state's penal code from, uh, it changed the thresholds by which something gets applied or charged as a, or could be charged as a misdemeanor crime versus mm-hmm. a felony. And specifically it's $950. And so when you're listening to um, like the police propaganda apparatus, basically it's like, well, we can't actually do anything because if they steal less than $950 or for that matter, also relevant to Prop 47 are in possession of more than $950 of like stolen merchandise. Um, 950 is the threshold. $338,000, granted this is over, um, uh, it's across 14 different people and I don't know the mm-hmm. particulars of like how things are being charged. But in these, for these specific, like these specific crimes, it is, 950 is way, like we're way above that. And like, these are conceivably felony prosecutions, um, which is not, it's not affected by Prop 47. And the the last stat just to throw in here, which we'll get to again in a second, but like when it comes to robbery, like at least according to the city of LA stats, robbery, which is the thing that is specific to, or one of the many things that like is specific to Proposition 47 um, sentencing changes, like robbery is down according to Los Angeles Police Department compared Mm -hmm. to, um, 2019. And I think I'm just curious, like how you interpret like the fact that robberies, like we're having a lot of media hyper, like hyperbole about retail crime, but like the number is that it's actually down, not to underscore, not to, um, not underscore, um, underplay, underplay, not to underplay the sort of experience of retail workers right now, because obviously there's a lot going on, especially with the pandemic and everything. But like, I don't know. What do you think? Like, how do you interpret that? I mean, look, yeah. Also, not to minimize anything. Like, I'm entirely sure that these smash and grabs for the employees of these stores was terrifying. You see a bunch of people running into your place of work, wearing masks, shouting, stealing things. Like, of course, that's scary. I really don't want to minimize that at all. I'm sure that that's incredibly traumatizing. 
especially during the holiday season, right? Where there's so much seasonal help. A lot of these folks are working part-time. A lot For a lot of people, seasonal work is their first time working. So I'm sure that these events were incredibly scary for people. That being said, like you said, we already have laws on the books that make this a felony. And so this this is nothing to do with Prop 47. Prop 47, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it, actually. It's like maybe it applies to like somebody stealing toilet paper from a grocery store. Right, because that it was meant to penalize, like they want to lower the threshold to penalize people stealing bread. Yeah. Like for like to feed their families, like it's basically become a rider on top of the right. crime wave sensationalism. But for a lot of the people that are being interviewed and talked to about this, yeah, it's been a hobby horse for a long time. Yes, people who are bitter about the fact that Prop Forty Seven passed in the first place. I just want right. to like point out uh, the LA Times ran a, a column by by George Skelton saying, "Is it time for Prop Forty Seven to?" be repealed, he ends by saying we should take this back to the voters so they can decide. He rightly points out that uh, he rightly points out that Prop 47 was passed by an overwhelming majority of Californians in 2014. So this would have been concurrent not with uh, the enormous Black Lives Matter demonstrations mm-hmm. of last year, but actually around the time of the initial much smaller wave of uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrations at a point in time where most Californians did not know what Uh, that movement was and certainly did not have a favorable opinion about it. But the reason it passed with this 20-point landslide margin in 2014 is because, like, let's remember what the the circumstances were. It's that there was an unconstitutional crowding crisis in prisons and jails in California. This is why Prop 47 existed, because Mm -hmm. we had conditions that, forget a pandemic, where we have this virulent... Uh, and and uh, just rampantly spreading disease going through the prison population, we had situations where there were not beds for people. There were, mm-hmm. there were not uh, spaces to put people. California was throwing so many people into the garbage of the, the carceral system that the U.S. Supreme Court, of all organizations, said that we had to do something to ease that crowding because we were violating people's constitutional rights. And Prop 47 was one way uh, that we actually made uh, an attempt at doing that. The other path was to build a lot more prisons. And Californians, to their credit, and we're, normally we're not a great bunch when it comes to uh, punitive and penal reforms, but we at least were um, stingy enough that we did not want to shell out to double or triple the size of the carceral system in the state. Uh, And what's happened since Prop 47 is that property crime has gone down. Like the crimes that are are not allowed to be made felonies under Prop 47, the incidence of them has decreased. But I do want to say, like, the people who are marshalling against Prop 47 now and are saying that it's because of this, uh, this sensational crime wave and the follow-home robberies and the flash mob robberies, um, a lot of them have been saying this for years and have been blaming everything on Prop 47 for years. The L.A. Police Protective League, among them, uh, Jamie McBride, the head of which has has compared LA to the purge on Fox News this past week. Uh, Mayor Garcetti uh, in February of 2020 went on TV 
and actually said that Prop 47 broke the criminal justice system. Again, before the protests of last year, before anything uh, dramatic or out of the ordinary had happened, and he had a quote where he said, uh, I, I am not kidding, this is, this is a quote from Mayor Garcetti. He said, unfortunately, there's the United States Constitution to consider. And he was referring to that uh, logjam in the prison system. So there's a clear uh, there's a clear case here where the conflict that exists is between people who would like to return to mass incarceration at an even higher level than currently exists because it's not like Prop 47 eliminated that completely uh, are running up against. First of all, reality, the reality that these uh, property crimes are decreasing, not increasing. And second of all, uh, the the constitutional rights that are afforded to people who live in this country. And and so I think it's, it's really just dire that we are being forced to, uh, to treat as a serious uh, to-be-considered proposal that we roll back what progress we've made on uh, on eliminating this system that is just meant to to tear people uh, away from their communities, put them in jail for long periods of time, just irrespective of their circumstances. One of the other things that I'm, I've at least anecdotally been hearing as a sort of reminder to keep everything in context with regards to retail theft is reminding people that also uh, wage theft and basically the bilking of like for hourly workers in in these sort of customer service settings, there's and not just that, but there's obviously a lot of a lot of like relatively low paid service jobs where employers can take advantage of their employees. And also, just what what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of stuff that gets thrown to me that says, by the way, everybody, regardless of how many how much property is stolen from uh, a store, remember that the real crime is actually what the employers are stealing from the workers. And I know also, Rachel, that you have a pretty substantial knowledge base on this. And I was wondering if you could help provide a little bit of clarity on terms of like, what is the actual situation with regards to um, theft from workers? Like what even, how do you, like, what is theft from, like, how does it work? And and I guess like how much is there that, like, how, how, how does the number compare to the number of like purses stolen? Yeah, I mean... I will start to care about <laughs> these smash and grabs of mega corporations like Nordstrom and Louis Vuitton and Bottega Veneta when we start to give equal and way more coverage to wage theft in this country because it is, it's disgusting um, and it's costing workers a lot of money. So I went and found numbers from 2019. I wanted to look at pre-pandemic numbers, purely because I feel like any research we have from last year is going to be difficult because a lot of people were laid off and fired. So I went ahead and I went back and I found what what could have been wage theft numbers from 2019. Um, and of course, these are all pretty conservative because a lot of non-union private sector workers do not report wage theft and do not try to pursue a case against their employers. Um, Because it's really hard to, right? Because it's very hard to, because of forced arbitration. Um, 
And so for these non-union private low-wage workers, and low-wage we're talking under $13 an hour, in 2019, it's estimated that employers stole $9.27 billion from workers in this country. According to the National Employment Law Project, who researched workers throughout the nation, um, and these numbers, as I said, are conservative. Um, And... If you split that up amongst the 4.52 million non-union private low-wage workers we had in 2019 in this country, that's about $2,050 per person um, that was stolen by their employers. And and our state alone, our lovely state of California, makes up $850 million of that $9.27 billion, which is a lot of money. And... I think that that's the real story here. I think that's the real story here. In addition to, if we want to talk about organized retail crime, the actual framing should be about what retail workers have to go through. Because it is true that our stores are understaffed. That's because a lot of places don't pay well. Um, It is true that places are understaffed because a lot of people died during the pandemic. A lot of these workers who were working public-facing jobs got COVID and died. And people don't want to work in these industries because they could get COVID and die. Um, Also because the public has been very hostile toward health officer orders, like having to wear a mask, having to socially distance. Um, And so there's a number of reasons why our retail stores are understaffed. And of course that does make businesses more susceptible to robberies, sure. But the real conversation should be, how can we support retail workers in this moment where people might be organizing flash mobs to steal? It should be less about how much property damage is happening and how much product is being stolen when at the end of the day, all of these businesses are going to write it off anyway. They're going to subtract it from their bottom line. So it really doesn't matter to them. So I'm just very confused. Well, I'm not confused, obviously, because the news is just spinning cop propaganda. And that's why the articles are written the way that they are. But it's really frustrating to have workers completely erased from this conversation when I think that they should be at the forefront of this conversation, in addition to the fact that they're all underpaid and a lot of our wages are being stolen in various ways when we're at the job. I will move on to the cop propaganda thing in a second, but mm-hmm. the I, I, you're, everything you just said reminded me of just like that you, you, you said the myriad of ways that wages can be basically stolen or, yeah. or underpaid or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it just reminds me of one of the other things that you shared as, and I think I, think I remember you sharing us, this with us uh, few months ago, but it was just with regards to employers not giving, employers not following the rules when it came to providing paid time off to go get a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And it was just... I, I just want to say, like, I mean, to, to that point and to all the different ways that wages can be stolen, if you were to actually ask people, if you were to ask Angelinos, I guarantee you, like, the number of people in the city and county who have personally experienced some form of wage theft compared to those who have been uh, like robbed, like physically robbed mm-hmm. while working at a store, uh, the former would dwarf the latter. I've had I've been the victim of wage theft, and I did yeah. nothing about it because I had no idea what I could do about it. Right. Uh, but I was getting paid. I was a salaried worker who was getting paid below the state minimum for salaried workers for yes. for almost a year uh, when I was in my mid twenties, and it was just sort of like, what? 
what am I going to, I'm going to sue this person. Um, and then I'm going to just show up to work every day for, I, I don't even know how much I would even get relative to what it would cost to, in my time to fight that case. And, and there are millions of those stories. It happens in ways that people can't ignore, you know, and, and, and if you compare that to people who have been the victim of, of robbery while working that that job or mm-hmm. or being the business owner who, as, <laughs> as our governor uh, pointed out, he has no sympathy for people who steal from Louis Vuitton because he owns wineries. Um, <laughs> incredible, incredible pre-French Revolution vibes from the uh, governor. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I would love to see a, a, a real survey of victims of wage theft. And And I think it's important and like maybe we should do that, right? Because it's not just what happened to you. It's not just, you know, your boss not paying you for hours worked. It's not getting your break times or having a coworker ask you a question while you're on your break. That's wage theft. Not paying someone if they take a lunch after their fifth hour. That is wage theft. Um, All of these things happen. And if you have worked in retail before, you know that they happen pretty much daily, especially during the holidays when it's incredibly busy. And sometimes you can't get to take your 10 or you have to take your lunch during your sixth hour. And then you now, now I have to go log into Paylocity and make sure I get paid that extra hour because I took my lunch late. So yes, in addition to having to sue your boss for wage theft, that's incredibly scary. If you're undocumented, that's also incredibly scary if you have to take both of those things into account. But it also just takes a very long time, as you had mentioned, Scott. It's very emotional, but it's also very time-consuming because governmental agencies in charge of these things are incredibly underfunded. And to illustrate how long this takes, if you were to sue your employer, let's say you work at Baja Fresh, which was cited in May and March, rather, of this year, March of 2021, they were finally cited for wage theft that occurred here in L.A., from 2017 to 2018. So four years ago, it took four Mm. years for 188 Baja Fresh employees to actually win a case against Baja Fresh for wage theft. And what it looked like at Baja Fresh here in LA is that a lot of these cashiers and chefs were bounced around between locations. So they would do, let's say six hours, in Silver Lake, and then they would have to drive to Venice and do another six hours. They should have been paid a premium for working split shifts, and they were not. A lot of them were also not allowed to take breaks. They weren't given lunches. And all of that is wage theft. And so finally, four years later, they were cited for wage theft, totaling $375,000. And if you recall, at the top of this segment, you will know that that is more money than was stolen during the 11 smash and grabs that we had in LA last month. So just a very easy comparison from just one employer in this state. Just to give everyone context, wage theft is a way bigger problem, is a way bigger crime, and is a much more important story to be covering than smash and grabs. It's not as sexy, but it's way more important. And it's affecting, I would say, pretty much everyone on a daily basis, way more than, as Scott said, actually getting mugged or getting robbed at your home or when you're 
walking down the street. So, and here's here's the the little pivot that I'm gonna go, uh, just because it, t- it like as you just like there's no there's no shocking video shows of smash smash and grab robbery, <laughs> yeah. but like it the the years of the years it takes for the I guess the wheels of justice to provide some sort of recourse for the workers takes a very long time. Mm-hmm. Contrast where we are right now with a with a largely media media fueled. Um, sort of discussion of a crime wave. It's like it's strange because then you have a you have the the video of um, people lifting stuff from a store, and then immediately mm-hmm. after it's okay. Here's two million dollars to the Walnut Creek Police right, Department, here you go. like that, within mm-hmm. in minutes. Which I guess is just as we're kind of continuing on now to this is a this is a a storyline divider in LA podcast, but just kind of more generally on the on the sort of just like generally the crime wave stuff, like. The, the retail theft is taking up a pretty, it has been taking up a pretty sizable portion of attention, but now we're getting into the, just like reality. Like we heard, we we clarified a little bit earlier, just that like when it comes to actual theft, robbery numbers, according to at least the Los Angeles Police Department in the city of Los Angeles are down. And that's according to the LAPD's own data, which obviously take the police data with a grain of salt. But like the number is 14% lower in 2021 than it was in 2019. What is up are homicides. Those are up 47% from 2019. And then uh, aggravated assaults. Assaults are up also 16% from 2019. Like, it's just, it's hard when when it gets all conflated together as just crime is up. But then, it, mm-hmm. like, when the key example of crime is theft and, like, theft is actually down or robbery is actually down. Which is just where it gets into what is the point of this entire media blitz on crime, which I know we've already talked about the election earlier today. But that's kind of where I'm... Like in my framing and understanding of why we're hearing about this, it's mm-hmm. largely because we're headed into this, what is going to be by all, like Alex Viennoy was up for re-election. Mm-hmm. We've got most of the city, or more than half of the city council is up for re-election. All three executive officers of the city of LA are up for re-election. County supervisors are up for re-election. And like, I think at least my argument is like, this is why we're hearing so much just broadly about crime is to try and um, I guess it, it's like it's like an age old tactic just to make the electorate scared of like yes. things. And also we have um, in this in this past week is the the recall Gascon um, crowd is mm-hmm. doing it again. So like yeah. there was a recall. Uh, Scott, can you do you want to share us a little share a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean the the Gascon recall effort, which as you mentioned, has previously attempted to collect enough signatures, a huge amount of signatures that are required to get uh, the recall for the L.A. district attorney, who was only recently put in office, uh, recalled. They failed the first time in spectacular fashion. They got, I think, less than a third of the number of signatures that were required to put the measure, or sorry, to put the uh, recall on the ballot but they said immediately that that would not be the end of the road for them, that they would be coming back. And they say now that they've gotten a substantial amount more money than they had previously. So, I mean, it becomes part of this, uh, what appears like there's, a, if not endless, it certainly is not ending anytime soon, cycle of uh, recalls being churned out against progressive lawmakers. There's a there's a, a real drumbeat to this. As you mentioned um, the the uh, I think we we talked about it a few minutes ago. The LAPD had a press conference where they've actually laid a lot of their grievances at the door of uh, DA George Gascon. Um, and we talk a lot about on this show the police as a political force. It's it's easy to 
connect the dots here and and see that LA Sheriff Alex Villanueva has also been quick to blame a lot of what he he says are the problems with the the criminal justice system in Los Angeles on Gascon. So it's easy to connect the dots. It's easy to see how uh, police are using the uh, the crime wave, such as it is, uh, again, in, in general statistics, we see that the property crime numbers are going down. But they are using a sensationalized version of certain accounts to say that things are a mess, it's the purge, and, um, and blaming that on a wave of progressive victories here locally in 2020. So, um, so yes, I think that it's very much tied to electoral po- politics. And I think it's probably not even separable from the question of what happens in 2022. No, and Scott, like I think about this week, there was a lot to do about, there was a homicide in, I, I think it was in Beverly Hills of of, a, of an 82-year-old that received a substantial amount of attention. But then there's also this sort of thing that happened this last week, I remember, is where it's being compared and contrasted to other homicides around the city. I think there was even a particularly poor taste tweet from an LA Times reporter about this that has been deleted. So I don't remember exactly what it said, but maybe you do. Um, but it's just like, I think in the in the contextualization of how the Beverly Hills homicide got played in media, it it's very much of the point that it's like, like just, or just to step back, like for community violence, it's just like, there's a lot of poor places in Southern California or like anywhere where it's like, there is just community violence. Like there have always been homicides. It's like, like the way gun violence works out is that there's more gun violence in poor communities of color in Southern California. And that's just the way it is. And it's not like it's changed this year. And it is just, there's more of it now, but like, it's, it's not like, like to, to, to try and focus some, put so much attention on like it happening in a rich neighborhood, the mm-hmm. sort of like it can happen to you aspect of like mm-hmm. local news media is just like, it's just doing a complete disservice to the substantial amount of like Southern California where it's like, where where worries about like gun violence are daily. It's like, you don't go out onto the street because you're worried about like your personal safety, whether that's like Pasadena or South Central Los Angeles or or wherever. Like this is how it works in Southern California. And it's just like, I'm so disappointed in like media spinning this stuff about like crime and violence when it's like you're ignoring the like crime violence and like the very real toll of violence in in our like city that like you were not paying attention that was like here in 2020 and 2019 and 2018 and 2017 from like as long as Los Angeles has been here mm-hmm. but then like when somebody gets killed in a rich neighborhood immediately it's massive crime wave and it's just Ding, ding, ding. It's just really frustrating and disappointing on the part. I mean, why would I be surprised? But, you know. I mean, I actually have been surprised. And and I don't know. I, I think for a lot of people that I talk to in in personal circles, et cetera, there, there's like a, a sort of like, why would you be surprised by the LA Times doing what they do? But, I mean, we talk to a lot of LA Times journalists. And, um, and I have a lot of respect for a lot of the people who work there who are talented reporters um, and and put out a lot of really high quality information and are one of very few sources in, in LA that Angelinos can turn to. Um, so I have been surprised and very disappointed in the coverage of, and not just by them, um, but the coverage of the, the so-called crime wave um, has been hysterical and has been... I think it has shown that local media at large has not been able to shake the worst uh, 
excesses of of local news coverage uh, from the past century in in Los Angeles, which is um, if there's a dollar to be made off of white panic, then you know then they will be on the money. They will be there whenever and and wherever that takes them. And and so we we see that not only has I, I think that the the cultural conversations around anti blackness, which have yielded some cultural changes, have not pushed the the needle uh, even even an inch in that in that particular aspect of this fight. Um, it seems like we have immediately memory hold all of the all of the highfalutin words about. Uh, racial reckoning, et cetera, um, at, at outlets like the LA Times in, in favor of the demonstrably only going to work to demonize uh, racial minorities' coverage of, of things like this. We, we actually had a number of stories in the past several weeks about, um, about basically like if you see a black person sitting next to you at a fancy restaurant they might drive behind you 50 miles and to your house you. in Upland. Based on what evidence, I don't know. Um, but this is the sort of thing that is being published without uh, as much as uh, a shred of publishable evidence, as far as I can tell, just sort of the the police saying, we can't disclose how we know this, if even that. So, um, so it just seems like it's ripe for, uh, uh, ripe to dub- dovetail in the broader move towards cultural vigilantism and and more uh, uh, incarceration that we're seeing, which is which is very unfortunate. I think it's all perfectly distilled in a Twitter exchange between Casey Neistat and Seth Rogen. And if you're not terminally online like I am, uh, you might not know that Casey Neistat, who was like a we, YouTuber. We mentioned him briefly a second ago or like a, okay. not, not a not a second ago, in a previous show. I wasn't sure if if it was, I couldn't recall, but that tweet about having like thousands of dollars worth of electronics stolen from his car and LA being a shithole or whatever he said. And Seth Rogen- That was actually pretty close to a direct quote. Yeah, no, you're, oh. you're right on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, I don't know what that says about me. But Seth Rogen's response was like, yeah, man, that sucks, but LA's a city. Like, don't leave shit in your car. And- some of us uh, were raised to not leave stuff in our car, to be aware of our surroundings, to always lock the door when you leave your house or apartment, um, and just always be hyper vigilant. Because, as you said, Matt, like this is LA. Like some of our communities have always had levels of crime to them, and it's a whole other episode to talk about why that is. Right, underfunding of communities, underserved parts of the city. Um, but I. You know, it's wild to me to see so many people act like mugging of rich people is all of a sudden this incredibly new tactic that poor people are using to get money and things. Like, it's just so weird to me. And a lot of us were raised to just, like, be aware. My dad still gets mad at me when I leave my aux cord visible in my car when it's locked. <laughs> like that's the level of of security that I've always had to operate yeah. this city under. And so it's really aggravating to know that media only cares when it happens in wealthier communities and wider communities. And even though we know that, and even though that seems obvious, it's still insulting to watch it play out again. And I am irritated by it. But yes, LA is a city. 
So just be aware of your surroundings. It blows my mind when people leave their front door unlocked. I'm just like, I don't like there's, it's yeah. I, whenever I've encountered somebody in my life, like as a Los Angeles local, um, repping Palmdale, Simi Valley and North Hollywood, that's my particular <laughs> where, where I'm from. Um, but I'm just like, wow, front doors unlocked. Yeah, where get, were you raised? A, yeah, no, where it's are like, you from? Yeah, is it's not, it's not my thing. Um, the last thing we want to know is that Metro fairs are scheduled to return, sadly, on January 10th. So that's the day you'll have to, yet again, tap to get onto a bus. The effective end of almost two years of free bus fare. Scott, tell us a little bit more about what we should make of all of this. Fairs are coming back, guys. It was <laughs> it was a really good run. I actually was shocked when I when I thought about it I actually just um, I took the bus the other day I, I don't I work from home all the time now so I don't take it anywhere near as much as I used to but um, but as a matter of fact Metro ridership is actually pretty high once again I mean in the the marginal terms that we're used to thinking about it here in Los Angeles anyway uh, something like 850,000 people a day are back on Metro um, which given that ridership had cratered before the pandemic um, puts us pretty close to where we were pre-pandemic which is a, a kind of a shock but yeah, like when I when I left my neighborhood, when I was taking the uh, bus out to go get my haircut, actually, um, I was thinking about it while I was sitting on the bus, and I realized that Metro has not collected as we we get deeper and deeper into Pandy life. Uh, Metro hasn't collected fares on buses for almost two years. Mm-hmm. By the time that they go back in in January to fare collection. We'll have had this natural experiment, two years of free fares on Metro. I never, ever would have imagined that this would have happened. But just as a sort of reminder of how we got here, because it is pretty confusing. um, Originally, what happened was Metro Brass worked out with the drivers unions when the pandemic first started that they were going to move all of the people boarding buses to the back door so that there would be less interaction between people and drivers, less potential for drivers to get sick, uh, which is good. Driver safety is a good thing. We we wanted to keep drivers safe. We wanted to keep riders safe. However, what ended up happening because of that, a direct knock-on effect of that is because Metro failed to do things like having rear door boarding on most of its buses, which advocates had pressed them for for a long time in order to improve bus service and uh, increase the speed of people being able to get on at busy stops. They never thought that that was important. So suddenly when they were moving everyone to the back door, there was no way for anyone to pay. You can't pay without getting close to the driver. Um, so effectively, unintentionally, and they remained somewhat in denial about this, the immediate effect was that if you were getting on the bus, you could not pay your fare. You were expected to have proof of valid, uh, you were expected to have money on your tap card, basically, in case a cop stopped you on the bus, um, which as far as I'm aware of, never happened even once. Uh, somebody saying, do you have a tap card? Does it have money on it? And then they would, um, uh, that would be required to ride Metro. So Metro was fully trying to say, fares are not free. The CEO at the time, Phil Washington, who is now at the Denver airport, um, actually said, we don't want to do free fares because 
every agency I'm aware of during the pandemic that has gone to free fairs regrets it. He actually likened it at one point in time to um, to trying to encourage people to go into a burning building to have free fairs on Metro during the pandemic, um, which of course was was sort of a, a spurious uh, comparison because we have people who had no choice but to ride the bus. And it's a question of, are we helping them or are we, uh, or are we jeopardizing them by saying you can't pay, but also we might ticket you or arrest you for not paying. As it happened, when things changed, when uh, we got further into the pandemic and we actually started to be able to vaccinate people and get people boarding through the front door again, Metro then said, we are going to start fair collection immediately. Advocates pushed back on that. Even the Board of Supervisors said, why are we doing that? There's not really a clear need to do this. Let's just keep the status quo for now. And eventually the victory was buses remained free, rail and the bus rapid transit lines, which do actually have uh, a backdoor payment system, had always collected fares, continued to do so. But the re- the regular buses on the street, not collecting fares. Now we end up at this situation where this uh, unintentional pilot of, of fare-free uh, transit is ending in January so that we can move to a different pilot, which is the, the fare-free, the fareless system initiative, they call it FSI. Uh, they can then start that and then allow it to exist in a means-tested way for people who fit into certain demographic brackets. Uh, both income and students and et cetera. There, there's going to be a, a way in which you can continue to receive fare, uh, free fares on board, but you will now, instead of being able to just literally walk onto the bus and, and say nothing about your your status, you will have to verify um, a, as one does your income, your employment, your um, you know your your. Uh, status as a student at a specific institution, whether or not you're deserving enough of free fare. Exactly, yeah. Um, and it's it's kind of just I, it was sort of morose for me because I was like, man, there is actually nothing like just walking onto yeah. a bus. Mm-hmm. It is so so nice. People have pointed out, you know, in other uh, in other contexts in Europe, you have the honor system basically where you just say like you get a ticket you don't have to go through a turnstile you don't have to tap you don't have to do these things you just get a ticket and it's more or less on the honor system you have a a, a heavier ticket if you are caught riding um, but it's sort of like a, a a balanced risk more or less of whether or not there's going to be someone taking tickets so you have that experience of being able to just walk on board and not worry about the the barriers to getting on but um but man, having that free transit for the past several years has been really intensely gratifying. And I, it has actually made me realize how many more neighborhood-centric trips mm-hmm. I will take mm-hmm. given the opportunity to do that for free. Even um, just something like not having to worry about having a tap card, not having to worry about uh, do I have money on it? And what happens? At, like, am I going to go to the bus and find out I don't have enough for this trip? And then what do I do? Can I pay on board? Can I, you know, all of those things, uh, while they sound really small and they sound like petty sort of barriers to trips, I think what Metro would have learned over the course of the past two years if they had not been in such deep denial about the free, the free fare dispensation 
is they could have learned a lot about how those barriers affect yeah. people's travel. Um, and I'll be the first to say, even a small barrier can be the difference between I'm not taking this trip, which means you're intentionally limiting your mobility, uh, or I'm driving, which is the thing that we don't want people to do, right? Um, uh, th- those are like those are really like the the three door. It's like the Monty Hall game. It's like how do you get people to take the door that uh, that ends up with you taking Metro and and um, and free fares is I think a, a helpful uh, way to accomplish that. So RIP fare free and start to think about getting your tap cards filled up. Um, they're they're doing to you know I think Metro is 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 trying to ease people back into this by doing half off of the pass program for the first six months after fares resume, and I will say that the half off prices are much more reasonable than the the full uh, fare or the full pass prices. A hundred dollars for a month on Metro is this is the normal, and so fifty dollars will get you an unlimited. Uh, tap card for a month for at least six months following the resumption of fair collection. But uh, alas, nothing gold can stay, I, I hear. So yeah, so that that's where we're going to be, 2022. Yeah, that's our show. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Rachel Reyes and Scott Frazier for joining me here in my house for this record right now as I almost dropped my computer. We're leaving it in because this is <laughs> real people doing this whole thing. Uh, thank you to Brian Holmes for stitching together and cutting out all the little things I ask him respectfully to cut out. Um, I work as the sort of editor for LA Podcasts. Thank you for listening. And then before we go out, I just got to give that Patreon plug uh, and that newsletter plug. They're in the show notes if you want to help us out. Or just always, earnestly, the best thing you can do is recommend LA Podcast or LA Newsletter to one of your closest friends who you think would find value in it. And that's all. Thank you so much for listening and bye. Bye.